So you just got back from a pretty successful hunt. You had the opportunity to chase swans and you had some luck. Yeah. Yeah. First, uh, first I, I've bought in swan tags before, but I've never even really had an opportunity to hunt one, you know, thrown, thrown a couple decoys out there and gone after them and just never with any luck. And, uh, it was funny. I spoke to Dave, uh, Stanley, who I think was on here a week or so ago. And, um, he was actually the one that said, Hey, you should get a swan tag before you come out here. Cause they're, they're definitely out here. Probably one of the best opportunities you'll have to get one. And so I grabbed a tag before I left and sure enough, uh, you know, it's an afternoon kind of a deal right now. Um, and we went back out there and I left the swan decoys in the boat because I don't know, and you would know better than I, but the, the few times I've thrown them out there, they sometimes flare ducks. It seems like, um, and so I was hesitant about putting them out there with the guys cause we were really duck hunting. And then, uh, the more and more swans we saw, we just kind of thought, why don't we just throw those things out there? If they flare the ducks, then we'll pull them off. And, uh, we put them out there and it wasn't, but probably 35, 40 minutes after we put them out in the spread that, uh, these two swans came right in and, um, you know, a nice big mature swan, uh, right in the decoys. I, I had never done it before, never seen it before. And, and, uh, you know, just it, it took a second to realize it was happening and then, uh, made a good shot on it, you know, clean, clean, uh, harvest right there in the water. And man, it was, it was awesome. Uh, and, and just a, uh, uh, once in a lifetime memory, I think for me, you know, I, I definitely don't think you want to go out and, and hunt swans every year, you know, uh, but I think to get one in your lifetime, uh, it was truly a special kind of moment for me. Yeah. Did you have a dog with you? No dog. I mean, the dog hurt its leg, um, getting in the boat the day before it was, it was really weird. You know, there's, there's kind of some thin ice out there. And, and I guess when the dog was trying to get up into the boat, it, it hurt its back leg. Uh, thankfully nothing permanently wrong with it, but the dog was not able to push off out of the, the blind for us after that first day, um, had to go to the vet and everything, but yeah, like, luckily nothing wrong with it. You said something in there, like usually swan decoys because of the white, they, they're an attractant from a long ways away. Puddle ducks will see them. I've had a lot of success of puddle ducks um, <clears throat> by adding those different species in than just regular mallard decoys. Meaning I've talked to Dave Stanley and his son, John David, who you know very well, several times about this, both on the podcast and in just sitting around hunting camp. There's something about white that attracts a mallard duck. There's something about white that attracts a lot of different things. They even say like, if you wave a white flag an antelope will come around and I've seen that it doesn't happen every time, but they will get curious because they might think it's another buck antelope in the area. It might be an, an antelope ass that they're, they're seeing it. And it, it might be a doe that got out of their herd. But as far as waterfowl goes, I've always been of the mindset of, yeah, you know, adding some of that white can really be beneficial Dave talks about the different waves and the, in the chop on the water. And as it moves and those white decoys are going up and down, those ducks see it, then it disappears and they see it again. So it kind of acts as like the same kind of motion as a spinning wing decoy. Um, but adding sprig, adding some canvas back, adding swan decoys, a couple snow goose floaters. You don't want to add a ton. You don't want to make it unrealistic, but out there at the Stillwater marsh, if you got a couple swans with some mallards, some canvas backs and some coot decoys, that's a realistic spread out there, right? Because a lot of those birds are really in those different grassy areas where they find the food. What, what, you know, depending on what seed they're eating, there's sago out there and there's Japanese millet and there's different forms of grasses and seeds. Once they find the food, they'll get in there thick. So I've always had a lot of um benefit i mean a lot of positive reaction from birds with swan decoys out there so i don't know if it's 
a yearly thing where the ducks might not work to them every time or every season. But if you're seeing that they're flaring off, I don't know if it's necessarily the white. It might be, it might be something else. Who are you with? Bill Fisher? No, uh, Tommy Sabini and uh, Joe DeRico. Well, Tom Sabini, I mean, he's got a big, big head. I mean, is he hiding it? He's too tall. Yeah. yeah, yeah I mean, he's, you know, moon pieing is not good. Sabini, if you're <laughs> listening out there, I love Sabini. Drake white rules. Um, so that the whole thing about that swan hunt though is that they're early right now to kill swans it's pretty early they're usually it's really hot and heavy around thanksgiving you know thanksgiving day and right after thanksgiving is when they really start making their way down that migratory route from you know utah and the great salt lakes the great salt lake area of utah salt lake city north of that of that place um there's a lot of swans that can you know, that concentrate in that area. And then they move into the Stillwater Marsh. Then a lot of them obviously move over into California, which it's illegal to hunt swans there, which I don't understand because if you've got drive through the rice country or, you know, around the Butte sink or around Marysville, all the way up to Chico, Orville, Gridley, that entire area, every rice check is just stuffed with swans. You could walk across them in some of those flooded rice checks. So that's cool as heck that you killed one. It wasn't, a, wasn't an adult. Yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big, mature uh, swan, and we definitely saw the juvies flying around and, um, you know, kind of a, as fast as it happened, you know, uh, it, it's, it's kind of like anything, you know, uh, you got you to gotta identify that bird pretty quick and, uh, you know, make sure it's what you want to harvest, and, and I definitely wanted to harvest a mature one, um, and so luckily, you know, we were able to see it coming obviously from a ways away, but you know, you got to kind of wait and make sure it's not gray on it or, you know, or it's not, uh, the wrong species. I don't know. There, there's trumpeters out there that can kind of, uh, stop the, uh, hunt. So to, you know, not so to speak, they do stop the hunt. What is it? Nevada gives you five of them, I believe. Um, so, you know, we wanted to make sure that it was the right species mature and, you know, we wanted to make sure that it, it was a nice tight shot. You know, I, I, with anything, I don't want to see it get wounded or anything like that. You know, it happens to everybody, but if you can stop it, you know, or do your best to make sure it's quick, that, that was important for me on that swan too. You know, that's a big bird that you don't want to go chasing around out in the marsh and having the dog not be there and all that. Um, you know, we did, we did what we could to get it as close as possible and all that. Um, and it worked out great. Um, so yeah, I was pumped. And, uh, you know, like I said, first, first one I've ever, ever even got to take a shot at, you know, I've bought tags plenty of times in the past, never had it work out right. Um, so for it to all come together, it was pretty cool. And mild weather. I'm looking at the picture that you sent me of it. First of all, I got to get you some new waders. You're wearing the original banded waders with the gray on them still. I mean, that's awesome that they've, that, that, that they're still working and performing for you, but by God, you're like, you're like one of them old school mindset <laughs> Reno guys. Like, you know, I'm not going, I'm not going to change my ways. These are my lucky waders. You got the old school banded flat bill, the Oakley's Benelli super black Eagle three. What shot black cloud did you use? What size were you shooting BBs? No. It, it, so, uh, I had BBs, but I had the regular number fours in cause we were duck hunting, you know, first and foremost, we were duck hunting and, and we had, we had shot a bunch of ducks up to that point, And I was in my mind, I was going to be prepared to put that BB in when a swan came by and, um, I didn't, I, I forgot, you know, I'd just be honest with you. I, I forgot to cycle it out, um, and put that bigger shot in, but it was so close, you know, you're talking, a, it was probably a 25 yard shot at the most. Um, the black cloud number four was perfect. And, and 
kept it in pristine condition. I mean, if you check out the picture, there, they, yeah, you know, there's not a big hole in it or anything like that. Um, so uh, he's a pretty swan. You gonna mount him? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna get him mounted. Who? Uh, I don't know. Um, I actually even wanted to talk to you today about what uh, I'd like to do a cool mount. You've always got uh, you've always got good ideas for waterfowl mounts and stuff like that. I don't want to do a regular, you know, kind of deal. So we'll talk about that later and maybe even who to take it to. Um, I just, uh, you know, we washed it off and got the, got the little bit of blood that was on there off and, you know, uh, the dirt and things that happened to it, you know, bringing it back. So we hosed it off and, and, you know, just took the best care of it that we could, you know, cause they're so bright white, you know, that any little bit of blood or dirt or anything like that on there, I didn't want to mess it up. So, uh, got it hosed off and put in a game bag and all that. And then, yeah, we'll figure it out now. Yeah, I'm looking at it. I think I love the idea of a standing swan, and I got a couple cool standing Canada goose mounts, but there's something about the wingspan of these tundra swans that are just, they're just huge. And I think if you're not, if you're going to do one and you have the ceiling space, you know, that you got a high enough ceiling because you don't want a low ceiling with a swan because it'll like scare the piss out of you every time you go in there to watch TV. And plus it becomes a nuisance because it's taken up too much of your room. If you know, with your viewing space and stuff, depending on where it is, but with a high ceiling, the, I got some really cool swan mounts of flying and their wingspans are so big. That's what people want to see. So if you fold them in and do a standing mount, which is cool because the neck's tall and it's really pretty to see the sun shining on a swan when he's standing out in shallow water or on the ice at the Stillwater Wild, National Wildlife Refuge. But there's just something about the taxidermy that, uh, you know, the, the, the mount that comes with a flying swan. It's freaking powerful, but you got to have high ceilings and room for it, which I know you do. And so, yeah, let's talk about that. So they, you, were you out there all weekend? Yeah. Yeah. So we left Friday, um, you know, mid afternoon, got out there, uh, went to Dave's cabin. Um, I think he was out hunting, uh, public land. So he wasn't around, but, um, you know, uh, it was kind of a cool deal because it's a lot about what you talk about. You know, it's so much more than just going duck hunting. You know, we got out there, we went to Dave's. Uh, he wasn't around. We went over to, uh, uh, Rick Elmer's, you know, chatted with him a little bit, went and saw Les, chatted with him a little bit. And then you go and, you know, make dinner and talk about what you're going to do. And, um, Joe had never been out to the, the Stillwater area, never been to the duck club. Um, so it was kind of cool to explain to him, you know, the draw process and how much that will affect your hunt. And, you know, a guy like Tom, he lives and dies by that little wooden pill. You know, you guys have probably heard us talk about this before. Dave talked about it before, you know, you're drawing your spot and, and you can scout all you want and figure out where the birds are going all you want. But if you don't draw well, you may not get the blind that they're in. Um, so, you know, went out there and had the, had dinner Friday and all that. And, uh, and then got up at, you know, four forty-five in the morning for that draw. And, uh, luckily we were able to get a, uh, a pond that we wanted, you know, a pond that we knew some ducks were going into. And, uh, we actually kicked, uh, kicked the ducks and stuff off of there early in the morning, you know, and then you're just hoping that they'll fly back in there and, and, and want to use that water again in the afternoon. And, uh, we had a pretty consistent shoot all day. You know, they, they were working. There's back no there. ice. Is there, it's too, been too warm. Or was there a little no, bit there, of ice? There was, we, yeah, we broke some real thin ice. Um, well, I mean, you know, probably half inch thick, quarter inch thick in the morning. Um, but by the afternoon it had all melted off, but the ducks in, in, uh, 
came back in, you know, two, three, four, five at a time, you know, that we got a couple pretty good volleys of, uh, teal coming in there and things like that, you know, which, uh, you know, they'll, they'll challenge even a good shot, you know, the, those teal bombing in, in that marsh and Joe, Joe shot probably a box of shells. And I don't know if he ever connected on anything, you know, but I think he had a great time. So you guys were at the canvas back. Yeah. Was the swan killed at canvas back? Yeah. Oh, well, shit. That's a totally different story. So you guys are, you guys are at Sabini's cabin. Yeah. Yeah. We and how does Tarico get invited on this hunt? And I don't, I mean, I know he's Italian. His last name ends in a vowel and he's Mr. Western Nevada, salesman of the year. One of the best college baseball players to ever come out of the state of Nevada with him and his brother, John, but come on, dude, is it always favoritism? Like Joe Tarico <laughs> in a duck blind is like me, you know, being the center on the freaking Golden State Warriors right now. No offense, Dorico, but come on, dude. The, Stick with the plumbing. The best is, you know, we, we planned it a long time ago because I've never been to Tom's place. I really didn't know Tom had a place out there. I've been to uh, Dave's place and I've been with uh, Kent Burroughs. And uh, so Tom kind of said, hey, we all got to go out there, referring to Joe and I and him, um, which I've known Tom since the the heydays of the building world. And, you know, Tom was a, a big shot at uh, Bailey Dutton, Bailey McGod. Um, he's still in the home building world. So Joe calls on him um, sales wise. And I've known him for all those years too, but we've never hunted together. Um, and so, yeah, we kind of planned this thing out and we probably should have invited you. I mean, would have been a, would have been a lot better calling. I promise you that. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> but is it, you know, I talked to Dave about it a lot, but there's not a lot of people that I run with on a national level that have experienced the canvas pack. Not to say they don't get to experience cool duck camps all over, but it really is cool to drive through that desert, that sagebrush, see the Stillwater Mountain, sometimes snow capped, sometimes full of snow. But that oasis in the desert, when you drive and you start to see the buildings and you see the bird tower from a couple miles away, it's a cool feeling to know that that actually exists in what is considered a drought-ridden, dry, high desert state that's not known at all for waterfowling. There's a lot of waterfowling tradition within those gates of that canvasback club, aren't there? Yeah, it's, it, this is the first time that I've seen the photographs in their... In their um what do they call it? City hall or whatever. But to think that I think at 1923 was when people started going out there to duck hunt the originate, you know, the originating members of that club. And they have photos of them on like in model a sedan cars, you know, and pickup trucks and guys in leather boots with, you know, wool pants on with straps full of ducks. And you don't even think about you know, in 1923, somebody had the presence of mind to say, like you just said, this is not a normal thing in Nevada. Like the, the, to see waterfowl in these numbers with this kind of water and the middle of the desert, we need to save this, I think is what, at least that's kind of the story that I was told, you know, they knew we needed to protect this. We needed to we need to carve an area of this out for duck hunters, waterfowl hunters, and we need to save this because it's not going to happen in Nevada. There's a, this is a weird deal right here. And the birds fly this way and the hunting can be good and let's hold on to it. And, and they, I think, I don't know, don't quote me on this. It's 6,000 acres or something it like is. that of marsh. Right they, next to, you know, hundreds or, you know, a hundred thousand acres of, of refuge. Right. And, and they, they did it. They, they, they bought it or however they got it and they 
it's cool. You know, you know, you drive around, you see cabins that were probably there in the twenties, you know, that nobody inhabits anymore, but they leave them up there for people to kind of see that heritage. And you see old, maybe not 1920s vehicles, but there's definitely like 1970s trucks that, have, that are out there just kind of rusting away as, you know, like, like a, a reminder of that, that heritage of the, the, the guys that are out there, they've got pawns named after them, you know, the savages and the, you know, the Carringtons and, and all those guys that started that thing. And, you know, it's a lasting memory for their families forever. I, I said something to Tom about, you know, would you ever sell this place? And, and he said, no, he said, you know, my son, Sam will give this to his kids and hopefully his kids will give that to his kids. You know, that this thing will never come out of our family. And that's that cool heritage and tradition of hunters in general that, um, you know, in Nevada, you're not going to run into a wild game, you know, hunting camp. You know, you're not going to go have a mule deer camp. Like you might see a whitetail camp. You're not going to see that here. You're not going to have a chucker hunting. But what's cool about it though, is like what you're touching on when I'm, when I'm listening to what you're saying, this is what is so awesome about history and historians and guys that have gone through places like the canvas back and maybe went up to the great salt lake or over to the butte sink and visited historic duck clubs or went back to stuttgart historic duck clubs the eastern shore of maryland historic duck clubs there's duck clubs in virginia and ohio and michigan and and idaho and montana i said in in california I said in washington oregon all over this country texas and these historians have gone just like historians have gone through and, and studied industrial revolution and the renaissance period and the history of the world or the world war one or world war two or the civil war or the cold war you take that uh, uh, the historian aspect or the historian ideology of duck clubs and hunting and conservation in general and think about all of the people in this country that are waking up at dark, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., been, been getting their boats and their dogs and they're calling down and their decoys painted and they're, they're everything ready. All their motors are, are tuned up. All their bearings on their tires and wheels on their trailers are all are greased and everything's ready to go, right? And then we got this little place in Nevada that none of them people out there, at least 99 point probably 7% of the other two and a half million duck hunters in the country haven't heard of the canvas back or seen it or been a part of it. And then we haven't been a part of theirs. So think about being a historian and being, and I get to do a little bit of this where I get to go visit a duck club or a lodge or a, a different location or a different habitat around Canada or South America or, or the lower 48 of America. And you start to see that it doesn't matter where you are. If you go to a duck camp in Arkansas or the Eastern shore of Maryland or Dave Stanley or Tom Sabini's cabin at the Canvasback Gun Club in Nevada, Fallon, Nevada, the oasis of the desert, the Stillwater National Wildlife Refuge. It's almost the exact same common from the setup to the drive-in to the smells, to the anticipation, to where the coffee pot is, to the kitchen, to the amount of knives and forks and plates, the length and the size of the table, the dining room table, the fire pit outside, the fireplace inside, the poker table, the table where everybody meets around with a little coffee in the morning around that fireplace, the cleaning room, the mud room, the boat docks, the dog kennels, every, the, where you clean your ducks, the duck cleaning station, the duck plucker station, it's almost the exact same no matter where you're at. No matter how much money some individual put into one, 
might not be put into this one and they're the exact same feeling. Now there might be a little bit nicer bed to sleep in in some of them. There might be nicer linens. There might be a little bit higher dollar whiskey at the bar or higher dollar coffee at the coffee pot. But the overall general theme, think about what you're saying. You drove 80 miles from Reno, Nevada in the middle of nowhere, desert Nevada and experienced duck hunting at its finest, swan harvesting at its finest. Thou hundreds of thousands of ducks out there right now. That might be a little bit of exaggeration, but there's at least a hundred thousand ducks there right now and if this last saturday it opened in arkansas louisiana it opened in mississippi it opens in tennessee coming up we've been experiencing this for the last 60 days in this area since opening day in nevada about not about 50 days since the beginning of october some guys went to canada in september what you got to do that day, nobody got to do in the country, but they were doing it in all of these different places. Does that make sense of what I'm talking about? Like you, you, you think about the energy in these duck camps and we're sitting there going, man, we're at the canvas back and look at Mallard view, Mallard drive and Spoonbill way. And then these guys in all these other different places in the country doing the same thing. And that's why it's such a brotherhood. And that's why it's so easy. If I brought you to Arkansas tomorrow to the Prairie Wings duck club and said, Hey, Brandon and Joel and Todd and Brian and, and Mr. Billy and everybody that's in the lodge, here's Alex. Crosby, you'd fit in in a heartbeat because you just spent time at the Canvasback Duck Club and the same freaking blood's running through that place. Again, might be a different location. It might be a different financial amount of what that property is worth compared to this property. That doesn't freaking matter. If the ducks like it, the ducks like it. Because I've been on the Prairie Wings Duck Club that's worth millions and the ducks don't like it that day. I've been on the canvas back that's not as worth it, not worth as much as that, doesn't have the flooded timber, and absolutely had some of the best mallard shoots of my life. Then I've been on the prairie wing duck clubs where you couldn't beat the mallards out of the trees with a stick or we're driving a boat through them. Your boat didn't even touch water. It was on top of mallards. It seemed like there were so many of them in there. So that's why this lifestyle is so precious, is that you can take what you're saying to me, and it's painting this vivid picture in my mind of, holy shit, this is happening all over the country on a daily basis and we're we can't take it for granted. These guys are doing it right down here in the Butte Sink three-hour drive from us today. They woke up at their duck clubs today and got to say, man, can you smell that? Look at those birds. Get ready, dog. Load up. Time to go. Start the coffee pot. You know what I'm saying? Isn't that the cool way to look at it? It, it really is. And, it, and it's, I think it's different. I think we could find that common thread through anything. You know, a deer hunter can talk to a deer hunter. You know, turkey hunter can talk to a turkey hunter, but there's very few styles and types of hunting like waterfowl hunting where, and you've always said it and you've said it the best, you can sit in the duck blind and talk and that changes hunting. It, it really does. When you don't have to be quiet, when you can talk, when you can have a cup of coffee, you know, you've been to some blinds that, you know, you can cook breakfast in them if you want to. It's different. And, and I'm not saying there's not competition and, you know, even sadly maybe bad blood or you know this guy's skyscraping over here you know this guy stole my blind in the morning whatever you know that you deal with that ac across the board um but that camaraderie and brotherhood like you just said of duck hunting and being in a duck camp is second to none and it's and it's almost rare i mean you, you you've been to you know world-class pheasant hunts and you've been to you know probably really great dove hunts in south america and you, you come back to duck hunting every single time, waterfowl hunting, you know, you it's come almost back. to the point now, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but like when I'm at a camp that has combo potential 
and they say, I'm going to wake you up in the morning and go walk pheasants. I almost, it almost takes an act of God to get me to do it. Right. Not that I don't want to wake up cause I'm up anyway. Not that I don't respect it and love the dogs and seeing it. It's just something about if I don't get to put my waders on or my bibs and my calls around my neck and that boat motor and that everything that we talk about, that's why I keep coming back to it. And that's why you go out there and why I guarantee you, I promise you that all three of you, Sabini, Dorico, and you, Alex Crosby, want to be out there again this weekend because it's such a cool-ass, badass feeling that we only get three months, four months out of the year to do it. Then we got to wait eight months to do it again, and that's what's so awesome about hunting, no matter what you're chasing. Right. No, and, it, and even to the fact that I wish I would have been out there this morning, you know, it's it's funny how much easier it is to get out of bed at, you know, four o'clock to go hunting versus getting up at 6.30 to go to work. Um it, it is there's just there's not a bad time to be had out there it, it's fun to drive the duck boat you know what i mean it, it's fun to go to the draw in the morning and and talk a little smack or talk a little strategy or you know bag on dave about the coffee being too light you know it's, it's just that social interaction that comes with it that, that i don't know how you could have a bad time there i mean even if a bird didn't fly by i think you'd still laugh i think you'd still be you know talking shit to your buddies in the blind i think you'd still would have enjoyed that cup of coffee you know had i not been able to get that swan i wouldn't have come home and been upset about it you know i have come home upset about not getting a deer or something like that you know but it's just it's so much different to be able to interact with all your buddies and and do all that that you just it makes that memory so much better have you ever thought about it this way of be the identification purpose of life um you know, I related to when Toby Key sang that song, let's all get drunk and be somebody. You know, you go through your whole week and you're just at Joe Blow at the office, walking in, sitting in your cubicle, asking where in the frick your stapler went. It's down in the basement. And by the way, I need you to come in this Saturday. <laughs> and you're just Joe Blow. You leave there, you clock out, you go to your house and your dad, and that's awesome feeling. Now you're identified as dad or husband kiss on the cheek boots on the floor massage watch whatever show you watch maybe a rerun of cheers right now don't know first 48 if you're me and then you go back to work the next day and you're joe blow again the identification process you go through these different things these different stages daily weekly monthly yearly and you're identified in all of these different places. You get to that bar on that Friday night, you might be a good swing dancer. So all of a sudden you became the center of attention. You get a little bit of buzz on, you get your boots kicking up, you got your rock concert that you go to, your leather jacket with an Iron Maiden patch on the back or your Levi's jacket with a Metallica patch. You know what I'm saying? Now you're identified as a freaking rocker and you're having fun. You're with your buddies, you're freaking rocking. That identification process at duck camp at City Hall in the morning at the Canvas Bag Duck Club before that draw, at Butte Sink at the Brady or at the Mallard or the Hon- at the, the Wild Goose or at Rancho Esquan down in California or at the Prairie Wings in, in Arkansas, Fred Zink's Club in Ohio. When those guys meet at that little headquarters in the morning, it might be a gas station if you're hunting public property. It might be, it might be at the field with the headlights on and the trailer lights on and the dogs running around, the four-wheelers being unloaded you're identified as that a brother. Now you got those camo pants on in there. You got your jacket on, you got your jeans or what your, your pants tucked into your boots. You got your mud boots on, you got your coffee tumbler. Some guys got old school coffee cups still made out of ceramic or old freaking tin camp cups. And they bring them in there and they don't give a shit. They don't need the new stuff. They don't need a gator cup. You know, they don't, they need, even though they're, they're awesome, they still got that ideology. I'm staying old school, just like you with those waiters and that hat. (laughs) And that's a lot of people are like that, but they're identified by that 
you might not realize it, but you're identifying yourself as like, hey, dude, I'm into the history and the nostalgia of this place. I don't give a flying rat's ass if I kill something today. It's going to be nice if I do because I love to eat it. I love to cook it and prepare it for my friends and family. But there's something about that identification process of hunting. And I'm not going to try to piss somebody off by saying this, but it don't happen at the country club, man. It doesn't happen on the golf course. And I'm not saying maybe I'm a little bit judgmental in saying that because I'm not a golfer, but I've been to swimming pools. I've been to high school gymnasiums and basketball games. I've been to golf clubs. I've been to baseball games. When I walk in there, I'm not identified. I'm just like, yeah, this is cool. This is neat. Even, even, at, at the top of the line, freaking courses in the country, you're, you're still just playing a sport, right? Hunting is not just a sport. It's like literally a culture that's unlike anything. Like you could go to any NBA basketball gym or major league baseball dugout or locker room, and you won't find that culture that happens within those reins of a duck camp or a turkey camp or a deer camp, which those ones are a little bit different because there's a lot of, a lot of quietness that goes on in a lot of those different camps. Not that those people don't get rowdy, but they're a different mindset of hunting at duck camp America. It's, it's so, I, um, like it's the pride in it and the passion and the love that goes in it is why, it becomes ingested in people once they get a little bit of a taste of it. And they might not even put the boots on and go out in the water and call it a duck. I know many of wives that just like being there because one, their husbands are happy. Their boyfriends are happy. They love to be cooking. They love the food. They love the camaraderie. It might not be going to Rodeo Drive, but the point of it is they identify, you identify, you're identified as a brother. Five o'clock on Friday, six pocket pants go on, beanie goes on, Standing around that campfire with my cup of whatever I'm drinking, wet dogs, dry dogs, happy dogs, guitars, duck calls a little bit if we're rowdy. You're somebody, man. Does that make sense? Like you feel like you're just part of this whole, maybe it's like a motorcycle gang. Maybe that's why Hell's Angels and and all these different gangs do it because they feel like they're, they're, they're part of something, right? And it's funny. You just, you just brought this little kind of thought to my head when I got to that uh, city hall you know, I'm in jeans and, and tennis shoes and a, and a sweatshirt. And, and I look over at the, at the seasoned vets, the Les Nesbitts and the, you know, Dave Stanley's. And they all had these like fur lined slippers. And I'm sure you've seen it before. And, you know, they're in their sweats. And I thought to myself, I, you know, I'm the rookie in the room. You know, these guys have been coming out here for so long. You know, this is, this is, that's what I wanted to be. That's what I'm striving to be. I want to be that guy in the fur line slippers with my sweats on. Cause I've been coming out to this, this draw for so many years. I, I know I don't need my jeans on yet. I know I, d- I don't need my tennis shoes on yet. You know, I know this time of year that I'm not even going to go out there until eight 30 because you know, that's when they're flying. So I'm going to get up, slide my slippers on, go get my wood pill, get my blind. Then I'm going to go back in and make breakfast and you know, I'm like that young kid that I'm going out at dark. I want to hear the siren blow and, you know, maybe, maybe something will fly by. Maybe I'll get lucky. And you look at the old school guys and they're just like, I'm going back. I'm going back and going to bed for another hour or two. And then I'm going to get up and go out there. And it was just cool. It was, it was, you could just feel that heritage and that, you know, that, 
that way of life that was out there with those guys that had been there forever. And then, you know, I could look around the room and probably pick a couple guys out that had never been there before. You know, guys that at 4.45 in the morning already had their waiters on and you just kind of giggle to yourself and think, well, the sun doesn't come up for like another two hours. Excited. <laughs> yeah, the ex- excitement and just never felt it before, never been there before. You know, maybe you're used to the, you know, they're used to that public land where you got to be there at three in the morning to get your spot or somebody's going to jump in on it there for you. You know, it's just all of it just kind of comes together and builds this like really cool memory, you know, and and I couldn't even tell you about any of the, you know, ducks that we shot or any, I I can remember the swan obviously, because that was pretty, pretty epic for me, but the rest of it is just all melts together into this one really kick-ass memory that, you know, now I've got forever. And like you said, I I came home and, and I, uh, I finished cleaning up the ducks, you know, and, and got all the fat off the breasts and, and, you know, picked out the feathers and all that kind of stuff. And, and now I've got, you know, a, a couple pounds of fresh duck meat that on a Thanksgiving will fry up and, or, you know, however somebody wants to cook it, as you know, I'm a terrible cook, but somebody will make that into a meal. And, uh, and yeah, it just, this whole total package and, and a great weekend in Nevada, then I get to have it for the rest of my life. And, and I don't, that's it. I don't need anything else. Right. That's, that's, it until the next weekend maybe somebody will invite me again or maybe we'll go hit some public land or who knows maybe we'll go coyote hunting and and we'll start over again but yeah i i got to identify as that guy for a weekend and And that's the importance that right there is what i was getting at is that if you can do that all the other shit's obsolete you think i'm gonna come in here and talk to you about five days of work no i mean if you want to we can but i don't it's not that i don't care you care about work i care about work everybody does but that's not the stuff that sticks in your mind and makes you happy. You know, you don't go out and buy a, a really cool swing line stapler for work, you know, but maybe I am going to go buy a new pair of waders now since you're bagging on me, you know, but no, I'm not bagging. On you. No, I think I it's don't. awesome. I just, it's, it's amazing to me that that guy, you know, there is that whole mindset. It's not amazing. I guess that's the wrong word, but there is the mindset of, you know, the gear junkie aspect and ideology of a duck hunter. We love new gear. We love it. And you're fine with going out there and not, keeping up with the Joneses back in Lukenbach, Texas, you know, like Waylon and Willie sang about, you're talking, you're the only, you're like, Hey, give a shit. I mean, these, this is what I'm running with. I got my dad's, you know, there's, there's a, you know, there's a lot of that tradition and stuff. And that's why it's, you know, I didn't grow up as a duck hunter. I didn't grow up in a waterfowling family. I grew up in a chucker hunting, deer hunting, antelope hunting, elk hunting family. And when you go back and look at my dad's old wardrobes and his old guns and all of that, you don't see a lanyard with calls and bands on it. You don't see an old pair of freaking, you know, oil skin boots, or you don't see a pair of hip boots that are made out of rubber. Um, you know, he had them, but they weren't used for, you know, chasing ducks. So I'm a little bit envious of guys that get to experience that, but being envious in a, in a, in a good natured way is good because you look at it like, man, what if I would have started earlier? But then again, maybe I'd be worn out by now. Who knows what, what happened? I'm, you know, I'm fired up about ducks every day and I've only been, I haven't even been doing it 20 years yet, which is a really a short amount of time for duck hunting. Most of the guys I hunt with have been doing it for at least 35 years. Um, you know, most guys start when they're six or seven blowing a duck call or getting introduced to it. But that whole identification thing really helps with this is that you hear a lot when you brought it up of, you know, public land and there's this whole deal about, Oh, well, I could kill them on private land. No problem. Y'all are just hunting them where it's, if you, if you identify yourself 
as a duck hunter and as a person that gets the culture of it, then it kind of cuts out all of that BS about competing and ego and, well, you're on private land because you're a big money guy. Well, let me tell you what it takes to get big money, right? The guys that I know that are worth big money barely have any time in their life to hunt when they were 30 years old, 25 years old, because they were freaking building brands and building businesses. And now they are 50 years old and can afford to buy a track of land that they can go and hunt on. Well, good. That doesn't mean that you sit there and have an excuse or say, oh, well, you're on private property and I got to go stand in line. And there's, it's awesome to go to someplace in Kansas or Missouri and go to Grand's Pass, go look it up and go there in the morning and have 500 people in line where they only give out 40 pills. You get up at two in the morning, go in there, try to be first in line, try to get there, pick your pills to get one of the numbers that you're going to get to draw blind. And then you go, oh my God, I didn't even draw a pill today. And you turn around and drive back home. There's people that do that. There's people that do that in Southern Missouri at, at, at Mingo. There's people all over this country that have to fight for a place to, to hunt on public property. And then you got guys that get to enjoy private property, a member at the Canvasback Club, a member at a Duck Club in the Butte Singa, California. But if you identify yourself and mature yourself to know that, hey, they're going through the same BS you are. It's not like they got freaking dumber ducks over on the private property. They might not have as much pressure on them. They might not have to fight at the boat ramp. If you work a little bit harder, you might get to have that. That's the way I think is like, man, I want to achieve some of that stuff. Maybe I do want to develop a duck property. But if I develop a duck property someday and I own a piece of property, what does that do? It ties me down to it. So now if the ducks are in freaking Kansas, north of Wichita or south of Wichita on the I-35 corridor down towards Oklahoma City, and I get a phone call that, man, we're loaded with mallards, but I'm over here spending thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop this track. What do you think I'm going to do? Hey, I'm not going to Kansas. I got this. So there's all these little gives and takes as a mature duck hunter, conservationist, any hunter. Like It doesn't matter if you have to go and hunt public property. Shut up and do it. But identify yourself within the culture of being a duck hunter, blessed to be a duck hunter, and know that I still get to go to a cafe after my public land duck hunt and sit around other public land duck hunters and, and shoot the breeze and have some over easy eggs with some biscuit and grits, depending on what part of the country I'm in. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah, I might not get to sit at that private cabin, or maybe you do, maybe you do hunt the public area and then get to drive in and have you know, breakfast at the private cabin, but that your guy already, you know, invited somebody that day and couldn't invite you. So you had to go hunt the public. If you, you know what I'm saying is like, if you identify yourself that, Hey, we're all the same, we all got to do the same stuff to kill ducks and have fun. If you make it like a, uh, a killing game, then you're in it for the wrong reasons anyway. Right. It's be identifying yourself with that culture of being able to say, oh, I identify myself with that road sign, that steam coming off that pot of coffee, that dog shivering and shaking, that dust coming up in my rear view, that sun going down. If you identify yourself with all of that, then you can sit there and go, I don't give a flying rat's ass where I hunt. I'm a duck hunter. It's a big picture. That if you, yeah, if you focus on the, the wrong point and you, you hone in on that, you know, negative factor of it or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And you're, the, you're there for the wrong reason. You know, I've, you've had as much fun at Washoe Lake as you've had at canvas back duck club. You've had, you know, maybe you had terrible success at, you know, canvas back. Maybe you killed a limit at the washer. Does it really matter? You know what I mean? You're, you're, you're hunting. Who cares what you're, what you're doing, how well it went. You know, it's a, I guess a lot of people always say, you know, better than a, you know, bad day hunting is better than a good day at work. And that's something that's really, you know, uh, rings true every time you go out. I, I, how many coyote tons have we been on that are unsuccessful? Never see one all day long. You might get down on it. You might get frustrated. 
we still got to eat a bunch of snacks in the truck, you know, maybe you had a couple beers in the, in the uh, bar afterwards or whatever. And is it really that bad? Didn't hear no. any sirens. Didn't hear any horns honking. Yeah. Didn't have a bunch of people with road rage. Didn't have to stand in line at Costco like I did on Saturday for freaking 49 minutes because I picked the wrong day of the week to go to. You're, you're freaking hunting, man. You're, yeah. you're, you're at camp just to be there is awesome. Now, I don't want anybody to go, oh, they just, you know, you just don't go out there and twirl your thumbs. No, it's a lot of work to make a camp successful, but that's part of the culture. If you want to be successful at anything in life, you're going to have to freaking get off your ass and say, you know what? I'm not going, I'm not going to be successful if I don't start practicing more, inquiring more, becoming a better sponge, a better leader, a better learner, a better, a better teacher, a better giver, a better taker. There's different ways and better ways to do all of that stuff that I just mentioned. And in duck hunting or hunting, I think it's so cool to be, have a mentor like Dave Stanley or somebody like Tom bringing you out there. And if you just walked in there and said, well, I'm a new member here. Nobody's going to, you know, where do I go? I, I, um, you're allowed to go out there and and navigate it in the summer and learn the bodies of water, but you got to do it. You got to spend money on fuel to get there. You got to have fuel in your boat motor to get out onto the water. You got to have the mentality that, Hey, there might be a lot of mosquitoes in August, but I'm going to do the right things to protect myself. This water stinks. So what my house needs a bunch of my cabin out there needs a bunch of renovations done on. I got the porch that's falling through. I got screen that I need to put back up. I got a fireplace that needs tending to all this stuff. It's, it's still work no matter where you're at. There's just as many problems in a private duck club as there are in a public land area. Mm -hmm. There might be a little bit different success rate or the different thought process that, man, you guys have it better, but you don't. It's still, if you teach yourself that culture, like, I don't care if I'm at Washoe Lake or the Canvasback Duck Club. I'm going to put everything that I have into it and try to be a good duck hunter. Like, well, it's not windy today. Okay, well, I'm going to establish this right here. You're going to be the guy that operates this jerk rig. Well, I was going to call today. Well, you can call a little bit, but you're going to pull on this jerk rig a bunch because I want you to understand the importance of ripples on the water and chocolate milk effect and what ducks do when they see that because they're not going to work as if it's just cement looking, you know, steel water. Hence the name where you just hunted out there. wind doesn't blow out there a lot so the whole culture of it is like i'm not going to make excuses i'm not going to talk smack on the internet because you have the ability to go hunt here or your daddy's a member of this club who cares get with it and achieve that because if he did it you can do it now there is a such thing as inheritance and there is a such thing as being born into the right sperm count but in america you can step outside of that and go dude i'm going to achieve that I know a lot of successful people that don't come from money and that whole mindset of a hunter is that's what I wanted to drive home is that what you experienced out there is nobody out there flashes their money. You don't know. You don't know how much money Dave Stanley's worth or Tom Sabini's worth. You don't know that they didn't have to freaking save every dollar they had to become a member there and that they got to, you know, they got to claw and fight every year to pay their membership fees and their shooting rights and all and, and their dues. Nobody knows. So to make an assumption and say, oh, you're, you're just a rich private land. No, no. I worked my ass off to be able to become a member, to buy this land. And now I'm working my ass off again to cultivate it and grow it and, and get ducks here and try to imp- imprint them on this land. That, that, that as a 20-year-old kid or a 25-year-old kid driving around, you should be able to say, I want to get to that. I'm going to start here in this public area of standing in line and drawn and hoping I get in. When I get in, I'm going to be a rock star in there because I'm going to work hard to decoys and hide and concealment and jerk strings and motion and ripples and training my dog and calling and, and shooting and shotgunning and leads and choke tubes and patterning and everything that goes into it. If you don't have the mindset that you're going to be the best at it on public property, you probably don't have that, that mentality that you're going to get up here someday to ever achieve private land access or make enough money to buy a membership. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. And I, and I think it, you know, you think back at, 
am I going to take the extra time to brush in this blind? You know, if you were doing that on the public land, you're going to bring that to the private. There is no, uh, there's no layup hunt out there. There's no layup hunt in the world, really. Eh, there is, I guess. But when it comes to wild birds, like we're talking about, you got to do the work still. There's no, there's no way around it. You know, they're not, they're not programmed to come into these certain spots. And, and it was interesting for me to see in both Dave and Tom's house, they've got an aerial photo of, you know, where they're going. They've got the time invested, like you said, to navigate those waterways and know where to turn here and the, turn that's here. That's the coolest part about that place. Oh, and, and Joe actually said to Tom, how would you know, you know, when you go out there in the dark, like we did on Sunday, um, how would you know where to go? How do you know where to go? He says, well, I learned it. You know, I, I came out here, like you just said, in the summertime. And he said, you know what the, the scariest thing is, is it's different here in the summertime than it is in the wintertime. You know? But I learned the basics. I know this channel will get me to this area of the club. I know that if I turn left here, I'm going to end up over here. It's not like he's not going to get lost. Of course he's going to get lost. 100%. And, and That's how you learn. And, you know, it's funny, you know, Kent, Kent talks about his, his, he's fairly new out there. Um, you know, learning his same thing. Who Burroughs? Yeah. He's a member of the canvas back now. Yep. And so, and I haven't gotten an invite from him. Uh, he's tough to get it out of. He texting him uh, right now. He, uh, what an ass. Oh, Burroughs. Kent, Kent, uh, I've been out there twice with Kent, I think. Wow. But he's learning it from the ground wow. up. Went out there with a GPS, found all the blinds, you know. Figured out smaller spread might be better out there because they've just seen some other stuff. Or I don't know. He's, just, he's learning it like everybody else. But, you know, like you said, he's taking the time to do it. Now you're, now you're not proud of him because he hasn't invited you yet. No, I love it that he does it. I love <laughs> – I've been around guys in Arkansas and waterways in Louisiana that where you're literally in a boat and you're going, are you freaking kidding me? Like we're going this fast with the trees are this close. And, then, and the, the, the way to navigate those trees, there's one way. And if you miss it, you're slamming into one, which happens. You're hitting a stump over here if you get out too far. And I'm like, these guys know what the freak they're doing. It's like intriguing. It's motivating. I want to become a better boat driver. I told myself that five years ago and I've become a lot better boat driver. Now, there's guys out there that are way, way, way better than me. But you don't go into Arkansas and I've been laughed at in boats. Like I've had problems with motors to this day. Anybody would have problems with them unless you're a motor freak. But as far as running a, like a boss drives the motors that we use on our edge boats and, the, and hammering it down and navigating waters and being able to maneuver it, I wanted to take a lot of pride in becoming more proficient at that because I didn't want to get laughed at. I didn't want to put people in harm's ways. I wanted to be the guy in the morning, had the headlamp on, started it up, got it going, loaded everybody in, gun safety, dogs in the right spot, decoys in the right spot, coolers in the right spot. And go out there and know that, hey, all, all the hard work, all the passion, all the love that I have for what's getting ready to happen when the sun does come up, I want to be just as proficient before the sun comes up. I want to be able to set a good decoy spread and hide right and make sure that everybody's safe and that everybody's hidden and that, that the dogs are in, 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 out of harm's way and that they're going to be in, in a good spot to be able to see the ducks go down. I wanted to be a better boat driver. I wanted to be better at all of that stuff. And I think that if you if approach things like that, the little pieces... That, that, that discipline of being an athlete, you know, you don't hit a home run every time, but if you know how to sacrifice bunt or move a runner over in baseball or pass the basketball or, or, or run the right defense in, in football or whatever, if you do the small things, then the interceptions happen, the home runs happen, the three-pointers happen, the buzzard, game-winning buzzard shots happen. Um, 
it doesn't happen though without applying yourself. You don't just wake up and go, I'm going to be Stefan Curry today and I'm going to hit every three pointer in the world. I don't know why I'm applying everything today to basketball. Cause I hate the sport really, <laughs> even though it's really hard. I got a lot of respect for it, especially Jordan and magic and those guys, but you've been watching clay play that guy. In yeah. In Argentina. Argentina. That's freaking hilarious. <laughs> But what I, but the whole point of it is that 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 mindset and that discipline of athletics growing up, I think it taught me to apply myself more um, and be able to see the bigger picture. Picture like, okay, I don't need these guys that are on this team are so much better than me. I got to figure out a way to get them to say he's just as valuable part of this team. Does that make sense? No, if I'm not the best duck caller in the world, I got to be the best jerk court operator in the world, right? Well, and that's what I think that you're you're hitting on something that that I've always, you know, thought is pretty cool is it's kind of that thankless portion. There's a lot that goes into into a duck hunt, you know, and and you and I have gone to a bunch of places and you you think about maybe even some of the small mistakes we we made, you know, I I remember when we were on the Snake River in that in your old boat and we forgot to take the the vent cap off of the gas can remember and the, the boat died in the middle of the river yep. you make those dumb little mistakes but you take for granted how many things that you got right you know what i mean y- yep. you didn't forget your shotgun you didn't forget your blind bag you didn't bring the wrong shells you know things that can really screw you up when you get out there you know if you it, it, somebody told a story this weekend you know that they went all the way out to such and such a place and then we realized we we forgot to put our shotguns in the boat that dumb stuff happens well that dumb stuff can end a whole day's worth of hunting, right? You know, if you've, if you've driven two hours and, and you've taken a 45 minute boat ride, now all of a sudden you don't have your gun, you're done. You know, you're not going to go reproduce that gun. You're, you're going home for the day. And so when you hit all those things, right, you know, you laugh at yourself or you get down on yourself for dumb little mistakes, you know, but that those little thankless jobs, you know, the guy that remembered the jerk string, the guy that's willing to pull on the jerk string, you know, the guy that remembered to charge the mojo batteries, you know, whatever, the, those little details that get lost in the big picture. But without them, your hunt's affected. 100%. And that, that's exactly why the analogy of athletics always comes to mind is in being that team player and wanting to, you know, giving yourself up on a sacrifice bond or laying out for a fly ball to try to, you know, save the, the game-winning run from scoring or keeping a guy at first base when he could get to second base and be in scoring position for a better hitter to hit a base hit and now score from 180 feet or, or 120 feet away. So you're thinking like, no, 180 feet. They're 90 feet. Pitcher's mound 60 foot, 6 inches. Damn, you think I know something about baseball. But if you think about all of the things that go into being a successful, let's say, baseball player now, and a successful duck hunter or turkey hunter, whatever. Think about this. What if you do all of those little things right? You're in the batting cage every day. You're taking your hacks. You're, you got your swing down. You're freaking, you're, you're seeing the ball good. You're identifying a slider, a curveball, a changeup, a fastball, a cut fastball, a forkball, whatever it is. And you're really feeling good about it. And you go out and go 0 for 4 with three strikeouts and a pop-up Texas leaguer. And then you take that shitty attitude out on defense and make three errors. But what if you had the mindset of like, hey, I didn't do it here, but I can do it here. Now I'm out on defense in center field and you can Griffey some ball out of the freaking stands. that's going to be a home run or you lay out like freaking Jim Edmonds used to do for the Cardinals all the time and make an unreal defensive play or get to the ball fast like Barry Bonds did and have an assist without the best arm in the game. But he got to it so fast because he didn't take his 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 you know, his bad times at the plate or his unsuccessful trips to the plate out on defense with him. In duck hunting, you might have 
the, the best hunt lined up and there's ducks in the area and you go out there and something for some reason doesn't work. They decided to do this today. It got cold last night. They sat on the ice all day. They came out at the very end of shooting light and you didn't get a chance because they're going to be nocturnal and they're just going to feed into the dark and then hold on all day tomorrow because of the temperatures. They might be getting ready to migrate. Uh, the wind might have changed. It doesn't matter. Shit happens, right? You still got to have that mindset in the culture and identifying yourself as a duck hunter. I identify myself as a ball player. I knew that I could get the coach to high five me and smile at me just as much if I made a stellar defensive play or a sacrifice bunt than a freaking double off the opposite field wall letting the ball get deep and hitting it to the other way. I developed that mindset and I think that taking that into business and into duck hunting and into life, I come back to camp after a very unsuccessful day in the field because I don't look at it as unsuccessful. I was out there. I got to see my dog. I got to talk smack. I got to eat snacks. I got to see ducks that might not have worked. I got to be with my friends. And now I come back to camp and I'm like, well, I could go lay on the couch and act like I'm tired. Or I could go fill my cup with an adult drink, go out there around that Traeger and throw down on some of the best wild game or, or fish or whatever that I'm going to cook. Then stand around that fire and listen to Leith Loft and sing a song and high five my guys and get ready for freaking tomorrow. That's the same exact ideology and approach into baseball, into duck hunting, into fatherhood, into life, into business, into entrepreneurial spirit of America. Not everything's going to go right. But if you take that, that, that focus off of the big picture success at the end and know that there's short-term goals that can be applied to still attain success, you might not get the big success right here, right away. But if you do these little things every day, a door is going to open and then all of a sudden, voila, now I just won the MVP. Now I just won the World Duck Calling Championships. Now I just was able to attain enough income to buy a place uh, at, in, the, in the Butte Sink or at the Canvas Bat Club. And now you're like, holy shit, man. I did all the little things. That's all I did. I just concentrate on the little things every day. No, it's, it, and it's, it's, you just touched on another cool thing that, that uh, I think that you've always been good at is it, it, the, the hunt is not always the hunt. You know, the, the hunt is there, but how your attitude is and how you behave afterwards or, or during is what gets everybody else up and happy and, you know, willing and wanting to continue moving forward. You know what I mean? I think that you've probably experienced as many bad hunts as you had good hunts. And you could be that guy that goes in the tank afterwards. And that next morning, everybody's going to have a hard time getting out of bed. But when you're the fun guy, when you're the guy, Hey, you know, we got our butts kicked today but now we're barbecuing. Now we're having a cocktail. You know, now I got a guy coming in that's going to play the guitar later. You know, maybe Clay's going to do his three chord cowboy routine or whatever. Nobody leaves there with a bad attitude. You know what I mean? Everybody leaves there. You don't always have to hear about how many ducks you got or how many, whatever you got, but everybody wants to hear about how oh, much on fun social you media you do. Oh yeah. yeah I mean, no, you, that's, that's part of the whole deal is that people have gotten this whole mindset now and you can go back to what you're just saying, but if they did what you're talking about right now, how boring would social media be? Hey, here's another picture of me by the campfire. Yeah, but that freaking camera can't smell. It can't see what's going on around me. It can hear for 60 seconds at a time. But if y'all were there, you would understand why I've already forgotten that the ducks beat my ass today. Yep. No, that, that, that's 100% right. You are 100% right. If you, if you, if you got to live through that camera lens, you, maybe you are going to miss it, you know, or behind that screen. But something that, you know, a lot of people could learn is who cares? You know, it, it's almost not as satisfying, but it's, it's, it can almost be as satisfying to, to laugh about it and say, man, I got my butt kicked today, but look at all of us having so much fun. You know, five minutes after you got your butt kicked, if you're, if you're standing around that Traeger or you're, you know, 
whatever. If someone's cooking you a, a pot of soup and you're able to joke around and who slipped and fell in the water and, you know, who threw that decoy without untying it first and watched it float down and out of the marsh, you know, those are all the things that you get to remember forever. Nobody cares about getting your butt kicked that day. Don't no. forget about it as soon as you're, it's over. No. And I, and I got to the point to where you just, you look so forward to the overall theme of a camp. And again, I go back to that word of identification and identifying yourself with that camp for that. It might be one day, two days, three days. You might be there for a week, but if you think about the, the, let me think of how I can describe this. When you're coming back out of the woods or out of the marsh or out of the cornfield and you're driving your truck and you, and you got, you know, you've been out there and you just had a successful hunt, maybe an average hunt. And you've identified yourself as this unit, as this duck hunting unit. And we're, this is our season. This is our time to rain, right? I mean, we're, this is our time right now. You know, we made it through the dog days of summer. And now when you start coming out of those marshes in that boat or driving out of that cornfield in your truck with your trailer in tow or walking out of the Stillwater marsh, you know, that might've been a hundred yard walk, whatever you're doing on public property, private property, that sense of pride that you start to go, man, this was freaking worth every single bit of dedication and sacrifice, the love and the passion and everything that's naturally coming. And, and that, that my, my, that, that I have in my psyche right now, that's really a, the big picture of life is that duck hunting and basketball and baseball and all of those things are just part of the life cycle, right? They're part, we don't duck hunt every day. We think about ducks every day. We think about our kids every day. We think about our friends, our girlfriends, our wives every day. We think about ducks every day or turkeys if you're into that or deer hunting or, you know, elk or whatever. And if you think about all of the tr trials and tribulations, all of the ups and downs, all of the road bumps that can come with achieving success, if you're not in it for the cornhole game at night and you're not in it for going out and clean, showing a kid how to breast the duck and get the tenderloin and the breast meat and the legs for a gumbo or a roux, if you're not in it for learning about somebody's story and their history. And, and, and I, I had a conversation today with John LaMonica, who I met in Saskatchewan. I'm going to be hunting with him in Kansas pretty soon coming up. This guy's 84 years old and he literally would not shut up about ducks. He's been there, done it. He has 77 pairs of ducks mounted in his house. Wow. He's hunted all over the world. Now, again, you know, yeah, of course he can do that because he can pay for anything. And it's, well, yeah, because he's a working freaking fool. And he's, and he dedicated his life to outdoors and hunting and conservation and introducing new people to it. And he's humbled to come hunt with me. And I'm sitting there going, I'll show you his books. He's got, he sent me two of his books here, personalized them with a signature and a little saying in them. He's been in all of those trophy room books, all over, that you see on coffee tables, all over duck camps and hunting camps. And he's humbled to come hunt with me. He's telling me, you have no idea what it means to hunt with you and be part of what you're doing for this sport and how you tie, like you said, tie in the music and the cooking and the Traegers and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm not, I'm sitting there trying to like be humble about it. Like, and I'm being humble, but I'm almost embarrassed that this guy that has achieved so much in entrepreneurial business endeavors, so much in the hunting world has houses all over the world. And he's sitting here humbled to come hunt with me in freaking Kansas. And that is the identification part of it because he doesn't identify himself as the rich guy on private property or with a big house or with a game room or with a jet or whatever he's got. He doesn't give a shit. He's a duck hunter.
That's what he identifies himself with. And when you sit there and listen to him talk and how sweet he is and how humble he is and how his, his approach to life and his focus isn't about making another dollar. And that's why he made a lot of dollars because he didn't sit there and, 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 and drive home the point that he was, that he was chasing the green dollar or chasing the green head. He was chasing memories. He was chasing the story, the experience, the culture, and the identification. He's identified as a success in a lot of different ways. And the one that he wants to be identified the most, besides a father and a husband, is a duck hunter. Yep. And he's worth millions off of business. Well, he's, and I don't know him, but how cool is it that at 84 years old, he's still trying new things and there's still something to be had about duck hunting. You know what I mean? He, he didn't know you 20 years ago. You know what I mean? But now he's going to say, you know what? Even at 84, maybe I'm going to learn something from Chad. You know, maybe I'll teach Chad something. Maybe it's just a different, you know, kind of a duck hunt that I've never experienced before. But he's still out there wanting he to loved, get after he, it. He told me today verbatim. He goes, everybody talks about the good old days. He goes, Chad, they weren't shit compared to what we got now. And he says the, the equipment and the experiences and the access and the pub, you know, that he talked about the public land versus private land. He said, dude, you can go to Canada right now and book a seven day trip and kill more ducks and geese than you'll ever see in your life. If you want right now, and it's affordable and there's outfitters offering this service. He literally has the mindset, like he's 84 and he's living in his golden ears of duck hunting right now. Yeah. And, and, and still chasing it. Think about how strong that, that, you know, what we're identifying with is when a guy that's 84 years old is chasing you down to experience another angle at this duck hunting. And I met him in a duck camp at Buck Paradise, just visiting my friend Grant Kuypers last year. I stopped in there, hunted a couple days with him and, and, um, sat around his, in his shop with him. And John LaMonica was up there hunting with some of these people from France. And, um, I'm not kidding you. He walks up to me and says, can I have a few minutes of your time? And I'm like, yes, sir. And I had already known a little bit about him because Grant gave me the backstory on him. And he just started spilling his guts. Like, you know, this is what it means to me to meet you. And I'm just like, man, that like, assuming that he's being sincere, which I know that he is. And I'm assuming I'm being, I think that he is. Um, to hear that and to know that you have the ability to touch somebody like that at 44 years old, and he's 84 years old. That's 40 years that he's been doing this, making money and business and driving people and businesses and brands and, and, and having payroll and all of the stresses that come with that stuff. And now he walks up to me in a duck camp and tells me that he's humbled to meet me. And, to, and then it turned into talking and me going, let's go hunting. And he goes, really? I go, well, yeah. And Dude, I'm telling you, when you look at this guy's life story, you're just like, how would somebody like that ever be humble enough to come up to me and say that they want to go on a duck hunt with me and that they're humble to meet me? And that's what's the culture and the identification about this. And it's teaching me every day. I don't care how good of a duck hunter you are. I don't care how rich you are. I don't give a shit how many toys you have. I don't care if I fly commercially, even though I am TSE pre-checked. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how many ducks you killed. I don't care if piles make smiles and uh, make a pile and all these hashtag bullshit that everybody says. Yeah, that might be what everybody thinks they're chasing. Like, we got to kill them, kill them, kill them. Well, no, you don't because you're not going to every day. And the whole misconception that comes with all this BS in social media and the editing process of TV shows and, and, D, and, and YouTube and all of these social media channels... Nobody kills them every day. I don't care who you are. 
Tony Vandemore is the baddest ass outfitter in the country, probably when it comes to ducks at Habitat Flats in Missouri. He's an uh, he got made his name in snow goose hunting in the spring depredation conservation season. He's got an unreal piece of property and, and access in Missouri and has mallard hunts and Canada goose hunts. And he's amazing. He's a killer, but he don't kill him every day. But if you look on his social media, people are going to assume he does because he has the power to do that. And that's marketing. And I get it. And I love it. More power to Vandemore. He's a stud. He deserves every bit of success and financial reward that he's getting. Okay. But he ain't killing him every day. And he'll be the first one to tell you. So if you go, I'm going to go book a hunt with Habitat Flats, you better freaking be prepared to not kill him every day. You're going to have world-class hunting, but you're also going to have a lodge that's badass and a fire and cooking and the mills. And I've heard, I've never been there, but I've heard it's awesome. That's the mindset that I want to have is like, oh, I'm going to Habitat Flats. We're going to murder him every day because hashtag make a pile, hashtag smiles make piles or piles make smiles, whatever the freak it is. But it's more than that. It's that story to his clientele knows that they are going there. There might, he's, they've been going there long enough to know that you're not going to kill them every day. You might, you might go for a three day period where it's, you hit it perfect and the mallards are in there thick or you go in there in the spring and you get on some good corn feeds of these grinds of these less of these juvie snows moving North in the spring season and you kill the heck out of them. But I know that it doesn't happen every day. Realistically, it doesn't happen. And John LaMonico told me, he goes, Chad, I've been to Iran. I've been to Iraq. I've been to the Northwest territories. I've been to Alaska and I've come home with nothing. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Don't matter how much money. He don't care. He ain't Jesus. He ain't walking on water. He definitely ain't God. Right. And he's not freaking going over there and just making a freaking world-class an animal magically appear. Yeah, he put himself in position with working his ass off his whole life to afford a good outfit and the opportunity to go to these places, right? But he's come back with nothing. And he's still cannot wait to go i talked to rocky merlo last night he's in alberta six days he's been sitting on whitetail should have shot one yesterday said said he was kicking himself when he got back to the camp last night he's hunting from sun up to sundown in freezing temperatures hasn't killed one yet yeah. you know what he said you know the first thing he said i'll show it on a text i've already rebooked for next year yeah swear on my life how freaking awesome is that well, you remember when we... Because of the camp and what Clay and Chrysler are doing for him at Tegum. He loves the camaraderie and the culture and identifying himself as a duck hunter from California that's got a chance to kill a world-class whitetail. And he's sitting in that lodge in Alberta, Canada right now, loving life. Yep. You remember the... Uh, I remember the first time we ever drove to Mexico to go coyote hunting. Didn't work out. We didn't shy away from it. We went the next year. It worked out. Every year, you know, it's different. But everything is this good time and this memory that you make of it, you'll continue to go. You'll continue to book a hunt. If it's that, if that's what you're doing, you'll continue to drive across the United States. You know, Grant Kuyper's, I'm sure you've had a missed hunt up there before. I mean, More is than that going to stop you from going up there? No, because Grant's fun. You know what I mean? That when you, when you get to start to say, I want to go because Grant's fun. I want to go because Chad's fun. I want to go because, you know, Clay's fun. Now you're, now you're fit it right. You know what I mean? You stop saying, I want to go because I want to smash them. You know what yeah. I mean? Who cares? About and as an outfitter, you got to take that approach. Like you don't need to refund your money if you don't smash them every day. And if you're being ethical and morally correct and doing business like you should, there's a lot of pressures and stresses that happen because, oh my God, I got all these clients here and they're paying me to take them hunting. Well, hopefully you've identified yourself as a duck hunter and a conservationist and as a real businessman of saying, Hey, this camp's going to be the baddest ass three to four or five days you've ever experienced in your life. Wait till you try the cook's lasagna. Wait until you see my dog retrieve a duck. Wait until you see how nice my freaking duck boat is. Wait until you see this freaking, this, uh, sunset that sets over this flooded timber here, over this freaking pea field in Saskatchewan. 
Now as an outfitter, you're going like, man, we didn't get them today, but these guys are having a blast because these guys have literally been looking forward to that trip all year since they booked it. You've been in the freaking trenches, not to compare it to warfare. I'm not because I know what our veterans and military do, but you've been in the trenches as a guide and as a duck hunter every day or a deer guide or whatever. And you're like, man, I'm already in the sixth week of this. Well, those guys don't give a shit. They've been looking for this. Their anticipation's there. So you're stressed out because the birds not be there. They're not changing their dates because they've had it on the calendar forever. Their wives know they're leaving. Their jobs know they're leaving. They've bought new gear. They're ready to freaking roll. They made it through customs. They're on their way up to the lodge in Alberta. Whatever it is, they get there. You got to have your game face on. What if the birds aren't there? What if you don't kill them? You still got to be identified as a freaking hunter, as a businessman, as, as a conservationist. And they're going to be like, man, this guy's freaking, he's not blowing smoke up our ass. He put us in the right spot. We had opportunities today. Stale geese need a push of new birds. Just because you go to Canada doesn't mean that you're going to crush them every day either. So you got to have that mindset of, Hey, this culture is why I'm here. I've identified myself as a hunter, as a, as a guy that gets to go to Habitat Flats and be around Tony Vandemore and see how he does do what he does and pick up on it. Maybe we didn't kill a limit, but we killed 10 and they worked perfect right over the decoys. And every retrieve that Tony's dog made was dead on nuts. What I wanted to see. You don't have to have a big pile. All you got, all that means is that you get to take a really cool picture. And then what do you do? I got 177 likes, put it on who gives a shit.com because that's not why Tony took you out there. Right. But Tony doesn't have to show that he don't have to show that to, you don't have to show that to the followers to get Tony more business. Tony's going to be booked up. Tony wants you to experience that and know that every bit of the passion and love that they have for that area of the country, every bit of his education and knowledge that he's passed down to his guides and his cooks and his law, his bed makers, everybody that helps him there, they want that experience to be something that you write about. That's hard to put in pictures. Oh, here I am in my room at Habitat Flats. Look how nice the bed's made. But that phone can't smell the spaghetti sauce or the lasagna cooking or the steaks on the Traeger. It can't smell the duck water. It can't see how fast that moon's going down. It can't, it doesn't get coming up and that sun's going down. It, that, social media doesn't define that. It right. just defines hashtag, make a pile, hashtag piles or smiles, whatever. Right. Yep. And that's the whole thing is that if you get away from that and then identify as this guy over here of, I don't care if you're at Habitat Flats, I'm 40 miles from you over here on Joe Blow public area. And I just killed six greenheads and a green wing till today. And I could have killed more because I was on my A game because I put all these little pieces of this puzzle together and my mindset was right. And I was optimistic, optimistic about it. And now I'm going to see you all in the cafe and go and shake your hands and tell Tony, I pray and hope and keep my fingers crossed every day that I get to the point to where I can afford to go on a duck hunt with you one day or get my skills so honed in that you hire me as a guide for a couple seasons and maybe i learn that and use it as a stepping stone and open up my guide service somewhere else yeah. that's much, the approach right how much of that do you think is your age since we're talking about it how was it important to you when you were a younger guy because i think i would be lying if i said that you know i didn't want to shoot a limited chucker or something when i was younger and i or a limited ducks or you know, whatever. And, and I guess how's that evolution of, you know, maturity take place. Every, for 100? It's hundred percent. Yeah. But I, that, that's why I, I have these conversations because I think it's cool to be that guy. Look at my calls, look at my lanyard, how many bands you got, how many mm -hmm. competitions and contests have you won? And I've gone through all of that. And I think that 
if you can just paint a picture of the culture and the identification in this deal and the identity that comes with it, and you give these guys that watch us and listen to us and, um, you know, through the foul life or through this podcast, this life ain't for everybody or through social media or through live events, our network, the things that we're doing, not our network per se as in the outdoor channel, but our network of the, the different experiences that we get to have, like having a Zach Brown at camp or Traeger's executive officers come in with all these grills and pit masters and cooking. I think that being humbled by getting to do that and 44 is not old. It's definitely not young, but I still feel like I'm 21 and I look like I'm 18. Right, Alex. My point is, is that my point is, is that the sooner that somebody Rocky's guide that, that texted me last night in California, the, the, the only two pictures that he sent me were him with limits of mallards. Because he thought that he was proving himself to me. So when I, when I talk to him, I'm always talking to him about, I love it that you fired up and that you're a duck hunter because you're probably better at me at it. You're probably seeing just as many ducks and sound just as good on the call. You're blowing, he's blowing a layers and he sounds just like a bunch of mallards and, and he's awesome at it. But I would think, you know, getting back to your question is what if we do have a voice in this and we can say all what we're saying and be authentic about it and not just blowing smoke up somebody's ass and saying, Hey, the sooner in your hunting career that you can get past that hashtag, make a pile or smiles or piles or piles or whatever the smiles or smiles or piles, unless you're Gomer pile, I'll see you after a while, Lyle. That's our new hashtag smiles or piles, Gomer pile. See you after a while. <laughs> I'm being a dumb, but think about it. If in early in your career, if you can learn that identification, not, Hey, I am, I'm just as good as anybody. I don't have to say that. I don't have to prove that, but I get to hunt in great places. I get to have a cool truck with decoys in the back and a wet dog on my back seat. And I get to look at my rear view and see that sun going down. I get to go in that cafe and shake hands. I get to go to contests during the summer. I get to go to blind building day during the summer. I get to participate in California waterfowl youth events and egg salvage and restoration and all of the different things that go into all this. I don't get to do it all. I get to do a lot of it. I get to put a showcase and a highlight on a lot of it. But you, you, you'd have to have a, 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 a army to d- experience everything duck hunting has to offer every day. You can't do it as one person. So if you just learn early in your career that, hey, I'm not going to kill him every day. And it doesn't matter if I do or not. I'm going to get to the point to where I can throw down on a grill. I can pick a guitar. I can sing, which we all know I can. Um, if you think about it that way, Crosby, of learning it earlier and we if we do have a voice then why not say how important it is to get that part of it i don't i don't want to see and it's happened to me a thousand times if it's happened to me once somebody recognizes me in a bar in a concert in a restaurant at the airport and i'm not saying that i'm anybody but it happens who cares but the first thing they want to do is take out that phone and show me pictures and i'm like and i and i and i stand there and i'm like oh man that's awesome i want to be engaged but it'd be cool if somebody just came up and go, dude, last night around the fire, you wouldn't have believed it. My freaking dog was laying there and, and this cornhole game was going on. Nobody ever says that. No. But when they come up and talk about the show, they're like, man, you just were, you were just at that camp. Mr. Billy was so awesome. And that's why I want to work harder at showing somebody like Mr. Billy, the cook at Prairie Wings in Arkansas, because he's a freaking legend. He don't give a shit that I think of him as a legend, but to me, he's a legend. Zach Brown will go to Prairie Wings as long as Billy's there cooking. He's his favorite part of Prairie Wings. He's a lot of everybody's favorite part of Prairie Wings. And 
I think that if somebody learned how gentle and sweet he was and that, yeah, he probably was mad at ducks at one time in his life and chased them hard. But now he's identified as a duck hunter, as a sweet man, as a dad, as a grandpa, as a husband, as a chef, as a badass hot sauce maker. He's, he's, his hot sauces are so good. It's unreal. And I get to eat them. I get to eat his fried fish, his hush, hush puppies, his pancakes, his French toast. And I'm like, Hey dude, you know, it's duck season. I'm trying to cut back a little bit on these starches a little bit. He like gets his feelings hurt if I don't eat his French toast. That's how humble the guy is. So he doesn't take any of that for granted. And I think that if back to your question again, I keep going off because I love talking about this stuff so much is what if you do have a voice and you can get that kid to follow along and say, man, dude, I would, I just went hunting with the foul eye for five days and we killed seven. You're going seven miles an hour. Or was it eight? do you know how fast you were going? But Think about that. If they go to hunt with me like they did last year in Iowa for 15 days in a row, we killed six ducks in 15 days, no geese. But we had the best. We had wrestlers, Iowa State, baseball players from the Royals, Traeger, Benelli, Federal, all these different people in camp. We raised money for charities, the local wrestling team at, at Missouri Valley High School. We raised money for the cops and sent these cops that lost his partner in a shooting to the baseball game at the Royals. We did a lot for that community, and we killed six ducks in 15 days. Somebody that was with me that really wanted to go on social media and make that hashtag make a pile statement wouldn't have been able to do it nope. unless it was a pile of rib bones from Chad Ward's ribs <laughs> off a of Traeger Pro 34. Pile I mean, of happened. peanuts at the Royals pile game. Pe- you know what I'm, Yeah, pile of peanuts and shells at the Royals game, which is some of the... Maybe dude, that's a good hashtag. Ooh, pile, pile of peanuts. peanuts. <laughs> pile of what? Copyright. But penis? Peanuts? <laughs> <laughs> That's an old airplane reference. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a, you, have you ever seen the inside of a brown van? That's right. <laughs> you like gladiator movies? But I, that's why I just love this format of, of podcasting and being able to talk smack a little bit, but be able to, you know, think it started off as just a picture that you sent me of a swan. And I very easily could have just let, let that go. But I knew that there was something bigger about that three days that you spent in the Stillwater Valley. Now that I find out through podcasting that you were at the canvas back club. And now all of the notes that I had, you know, I took a bunch of notes in the last 48 hours to talk with you about what you're doing. And it took me off on a whole tangent about the whole culture and identification process that happens when you see that green sign that says, welcome to Stillwater Farms on those corrals and you drive up and you got the dog cemetery on your left and then you take that slight right turn and you go down and you start seeing the cabins and you go across the cattle guard on your right is a marsh with ducks in it and coots swimming around and then you go in and you got Spoonbill and you got Sprig and you got Mallard and you got Canvasback Way and then you got Dave's place on his cabin and all of the Chris Coffentini and the Piccinini's and the Oak it's like an Italian dinner. Hey, and then you got the Doritos out there and the Thomas Sabini's. Hey, but you go through there and you're like, dude, this wasn't even about killing a freaking 17 freaking foot wingspan swan that looks like a freaking dinosaur raptor, right? It wasn't about that. It was about all of the other stuff that took place within the confines of those dirt roads and the canvasback duck clubs happening all over America, Canada duck camps, South America. I was in Argentina with Monty Baldwin. Same sh- same stuff, fireplace, bar, steaks, grill, dogs, decoys, blinds, 
stories, memories, photos. Uh, probably too bad a service to hashtag make a pile every day. But I heard you made a pile though. <laughs> we did, but dude, who cares? I could go down there right now. Monty could call me right now and say, I "Ain't got no ducks. You want to come eat?" Yep. Is Franco there? Yep. Is, is is everybody that was at that camp when I was there? There, I would go back just because it was just like family. Yeah. And I, as a matter of fact, I had them here. Cesar and Franco here Saturday night again. They're up here working in one, working with Monty. They came here for dinner and I cooked halibut and salmon and buffalo and elk and crab. Wade brought me the crab from Washington and Oregon. Dungeness, best tasting crab there is. Christy Crabtree, Nevada Foodies, at Nevada Foodies on Instagram. She is badass. Never says hashtag smiles or piles, peel, um, piles or smiles, but she always talks about what she feels with processing and butchering and cooking that meat. She gave me the buffalo. She gave me the backstraps from her Nevada cow elk, right? That's a good donation right there. The halibut was given to me by Chris Ravencroft, who caught it in Alaska. The coho salmon was given to me by Chris Ravencroft, who caught it in Alaska. That doesn't I didn't catch or kill any of it. And I got to cook it for my friends from Argentina, my friends from California, my friends from Nevada. And all of them are like, man, this is awesome. And it was awesome. And, the, and I, remember, I wish it was happening right now. I wish I had another one of those little get-together parties tonight. Right. That's because of hunting. That's the culture. That's identifying myself. I'm a duck hunter and now I'm a cook and now I'm a friend and taste this and smile. Even if you don't like the taste of it. Yep. Right. Exactly. I didn't have to threaten anybody, but that Argentina duck camp moved to my house up here in Nevada and they felt just like they were at home. Yep. I'm telling you, and the language barrier is there, but they felt just like they were at home. So earlier in your life, if you can start to understand, I look at that picture of that dead swan, and the first thing that goes off in my head when I found out where you were is, I bet you I can have a conversation about more than just that, those pellets going through that bird and the, the, the sadness of that head jerking back and dying and making a big splash in the water, and then you walking out and getting it and wrapping your hand around the neck and going, hey, look at this picture. That's not what it's about. It's about everything that we just touched on is why we duck hunt and why we identify ourselves as duck hunters. Yep. And I had a guy this morning ask me, you know, how'd you do? And that's a very normal thing for somebody to say, you know, they, if, if somebody knows that you went hunting, they're going to ask you how you did. I mean, that's kind of maybe the icebreaker to the, to the, uh, conversation, but it quickly went on to, uh, you know, uh, uh sorry, you know, having too much to drink the, the, the first night you got there and almost, you know, sleeping in too long and, you know, having a headache in the morning, you know, because who cares how many rookies, rookies. Yeah. I mean, who, who cares how many you got, you know, I, I, I had a great freaking time. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, uh, take a picture of the, the breakfast that I cooked and put it on Instagram or any of that. I lived in the moment for two or three days, dude. And you know what I mean? Had a great time out at that canvasback duck club. And it's just, it's, it's pure, I guess is, is like you said, I, I got to have that wonderful weekend and who, who cares how many other ducks got shot or it's almost shameful though, that you have to, you have to say, um, as you know, when you're in the, in the business and you're, you're built, it's not shameful. That's the wrong word. But if I'm not, if I'm not recording something on my phone or have somebody on the team recording something we're doing and we're missing something that could help us brand more, sell more, solidify ourselves in this space and industry more, then you feel like you're not doing your job. And that's so fake because what if you just did live in the moment for a few days and you got to come back and go, I didn't have a phone. I don't have any proof. But here's what I learned. Here's what I got to talk about. Here's the memories and the picture that was painted to me and the experience. I don't, again, well, show me a picture. How many ducks did you kill? 
Were you sky blasting him? Show me some video. I don't have any of that, but here's what I do have. Here's the smells I remember. Here's the guys I saw in their freaking waders at four in the morning when the sun don't come up till seven and they're at the draw sweating their balls off. Here's what I, here's, here's what I really did get to experience. That's what's important. And then you go, well, everybody's watching life through a phone now. And we are, I go to his, a, a concert and I just sit there and I'm just as guilty. I try not to do it. I, I try to get a few clips, you know? Yeah. I'm branding. That might help brand. Does it really? Don't know. Maybe it makes somebody go, man, if I work hard enough to be a good duck hunter, I can go to a concert. No, it's just this mindset that we have now that dude, I'm watching the best band in America right now. Guns and roses with Zach Brown right there is a close second. In my opinion, probably right. As far as overall band goes, it's tough to beat those two. Maybe Slipknot, maybe Stone Sour a little bit, but I'm telling you, if we get into music, me and you'll probably have a pretty good conversation about that. You got looking at you right now. You got Michael Jackson, beat it. You got Prince when doves cry. You got quiet riot, bang your head. Mm -hmm. Come on, feel the noise. You got twisted sister. I want to rock. We're not going to take it. You got rat round and round Stephen Piercy. You got the red, you know, the redheaded stranger Willie Nelson. Okay. I'm going off on a little bit of a musical tangent, but I go to all these concerts and I look down and everybody's freaking watching it through this little four inch screen. And I'm like, dude, you got Willie Nelson up there. It's here He's 84 years old. It's right here. What in the freak are you doing? And by the way, if you ever show me a video of you at a Willie Nelson concert and ask me to listen to him sing, I'm probably going to knock the phone out of your hand. Right. Who watches those videos? You're going to save them and go, I was here at the Grand Sierra Resort in the Grand Theater one night, and he sang Angels Flying Too Close to the Ground, and I recorded it, and there's the proof that I was there. Right. Never going to see it again. Never going to see it again. Better off just to watch it. Better off just to watch it. And, and you do have a little bit different, you know... Uh, yeah, tell people this, because this is why I'm on my phone. Tell them, No, no I mean, you got a, you've got a different uh, purpose or, or reason to do what you're doing. Um, but I do think that you've got a very tasteful social media that does show the other side of it. You know what I mean? I, I, I I'm going to guess that you, you'll see more of a campfire than you're going to see of a, of a layout blinder. You're going to see more of a guy playing a guitar than you're going to see, you know, a, 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 yeah, of a duck getting shot or I'm not saying that you maybe don't have that or, but you capture that in a different way. And, and, you know, I think that you're right. The people that are living through that four inch screen, they're just not living it. You know what I mean? And, and they're doing it for whatever you get out of showing it to somebody later, but how about having it for yourself? You know? And, and that's, that is, it. it's, it's, you bring up a good point that a lot of people are, are really bound by this social media thing. And I think it's cool that you're doing it a different way. You know, I think that you could show this pile to make somebody smile for Lyle, who you got to meet a while Gomer ago. Pile. Oh yeah. Gomer, Gomer pile. But you don't do that. I mean, you might show a bird or two here. I think that, and, and Clay's really good at it too, is that you guys take these really cool pictures that aren't even about that animal that's there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that's kind of, that's kind of a, a good take on it is, is instead of focusing on, you know, like you said, that, that bird that's laying there, that coyote that's laying there, look at that sunset, you know, look at that, uh, clay caught one the other day. Look at, look at all those cows in the background that this guy's got, you know what I mean? Like there's a thousand cows standing out there. Then we just bomb this coyote, you know, to help, you know, this rancher when they start to calf later or yeah, there's just a strap of ducks sitting right there, but look at that field back there and that sun going down and, or, you know, maybe it's look at Grant's cool little lodge that he's set up for us over here and yeah. then all of a sudden you don't even care about those ducks anymore you want to go there and see what's in the background and that's going back to your question of well is that an age thing and 
Maybe, but we're not old. No. And we get it. Are we older than 20? Yeah, but 2021, 20, you're old enough to drive. You're old enough to drink. You're old enough to go fight for our freedoms. You ought to be old enough to understand what duck hunting really means. And it's not about how many you kill. I drank 17 beers last night and four of those I shotgun. Really? It's not about that. Really? Because I don't care. Yeah. It doesn't matter. That's we how got people, to the same place. But when you're 20, you brag about that. Yeah. Dude, I got hammered last night. Yep. So put it on who gives a shit.com. Exactly. If you think about that, nobody cares. Yeah. It's not that big of a deal. Neither is killing ducks. But where did you get hammered? Was it a cool camp? Was it right. a cool group of people? Was it Were you at a good concert? What, is yeah. there memories there? And all you can say is that, dude, 17 beers, Frank the Tank, nobody cares. Same, yeah, same as ducks, dude. If you learn it earlier, even if you're 21, 25, if you have a voice like we, I think we might in some of these instances, and you could say, hey, don't worry about how many beers you drank and don't worry about how many greenheads you killed. Yep. Well, I killed four banded ones. Really? What are you going to do with those bands now? They're going to be on my lanyard. Oh, really? That's, that's cool. Now you're going to add weight to your neck, but you haven't been to the gym in 10 years. So what if you develop a hunchback from having that much weight on your neck? What if you get a rash? <laughs> what if you get a rash <laughs> from that metal that was in duck water on a duck's leg or a goose's leg? What if it develops some kind of rash that itches you? And when you're scratching that itch, you miss something else that's going on in life. <laughs> Think about what that's I'm saying tangent. here. That's a tangent. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that nobody cares how many beers you drink. Nobody cares how many ducks you killed. Right. That's not what defines a season, and that's definitely not what defines the identif identity of a duck hunter. So that's that's really what started this. Is like I I wanted to talk about, and we'll get on. We'll do this later. I wanted to talk about entrepreneurial spirit and transportation and Uber and taxi business and shuttles and what's going on in that world because I'm interested in that. How in the hell is Uber so good at what they do when? You, you get the same service from a cab company and why, why is this whole deal taking over and why is it really taking over is, or is it just a misconception that people have? But I wanted to get into some of that, but seeing that picture of you holding that swan and talking and knowing what you just did, that's why I started off. Where, where, where were you just now? I thought you were at Stillwater, which you were, but you were on, you're a private land hunter, oh, yeah. man. You're High a private fence land. Swan, that guy. I am going to smoke Sabini when I see him. I'm going <laughs> to lay him out with one just like that for not inviting me. That's BS. He's been to my house. I have a bottle of his duckhorn wine he bought me. Does he have Drake White posters on his ceiling? He does. He does? We, we In his spoke, room? We did. He does. We spoke about uh, Drake, Drake White for White three hours. And, he said so, he went to a concert with you and, and being in your backyard with Drake and... It, it, it's funny. And it's funny you bring up duckhorn wine. Cause I was going to bring this up. He, he's got a cool little tradition at his cabin and I don't know how old they went, but, but there's lots of them. Maybe, uh, that's good or bad, but he brings that duckhorn wine up there and, and they sign the bottles yeah. with, um, silver marker. Yeah. It's kind of cool. You know, it's, it's like, awesome. You know, 2008 I was and, and it's, it, I love it. Cause it's like who he was with, you know, what he drew, um, not that he cares, but how many ducks he killed. And, and there's plenty of bottles in there, believe me, that say... Zero. Zero. Scum. There's probably more bottles on those zero days. Yeah. We gotta drink more wine. No, it, it, and that's what it is. Is it, 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 He's adapted or, uh, you know, evolved into the experience over the hunt. He, he, he's got it all. He's got a shed full of... De or, a tra you know, a garage full of decoys. And he's got a badass boat and, you know, all that stuff. And he knows all the channels... I bet you at the end of the day, he could care less if he killed a bird yesterday. He's a good shot too, which, uh, you know, surprised me. So, really? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Sabini's no, a good shot. Oh yeah. Sabini's I mean, a good shot. Well, dude, they've man. hunted for a long time, but you know, that, but like I said, I, I think he could care less about that. I think that I know he had more fun cooking dinner, eating dinner, 
having a whiskey, walking over to Dave's house, walking over to hell to the yes, dude, or hell to the yeah, yeah, shizzle. He, he like I said, he, he's just evolved into that's that's the cool place to be, and it's not the cool place was not to be with a strap full of ducks. Not that it's not cool. Not that that's why you weren't out there. But I guarantee you, he only talked about how much fun we had afterwards or how funny it was that, you know, we got to get drug out of bed at 4.45 to go to the, 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 the draw. Never, never going to say that we didn't get any ducks on Sunday. We didn't get any ducks on Sunday. And we still went. We still had fun. You know, we still got to go for a boat ride, which, you know, like you said, you're, you're honing your skills behind the motor. You're, you know, getting a call at some that are going by or something like that. We still had that great time. And I never fired a shot on Sunday. Who cares? I didn't come home and say, man, it sucked. What I came home and said, you know, we, we had an unbelievable time. And, you know, uh, the food was good and all the things were great. And, yeah, I shared a picture of you or to you of my swan. And uh, that was a first time in my life experience. But I didn't dwell on that. I, I'm enjoying it. I got that memory. I'm just going to laugh about all the other great times I had too. You know, it's a bigger portion of the pie went into the after and the before and the fun during then it goes into pulling that trigger, you know? And that's the answer to your question is if I'm 20, I want to get to that point quicker. Maybe make it a goal by 23, 25. Definitely by the time you get married, definitely by the time you maybe even get a girlfriend know that there's so much more into it and that there's so much failure that occurs on private property, just like it does on public property. And that it's identifying yourself with the overall lifestyle and culture of being what I call a badass duck hunter. Cause we all are, we're humbled to be able to do this. We're not entitled and we're so blessed to be able to get to go and do it. And guys, that's Alex Crosby. That's why I love talking to him. He just gets it. That's why he's successful in life. One of my best friends, this life ain't for everybody podcast, Chad building. I could go into the long spiel about what's available right now on the outdoor channel with the foul life and our websites and our social media. But right now I don't care. I'm just humbled to have this conversation. Um, check out Crosby, um, at a cross at, um, on Instagram to see that swan we talked about. It's a dandy, but just know that he experienced a lot more out there, but he probably didn't think y'all be interested in the pot of coffee or that campfire that he was sitting at, but I am. That's why we talked about it. This life ain't for everybody. For Alex Crosby, I'm Chad Belding. Thank you all so much for the support. We are very humbled by the success of the podcast so far. We can't wait for future guests. We got a lot of cool people coming up. And this week started off with a bang with Mr. Alex Crosby again. Tom Rashashin, do me a favor. Leith Lofton, what you going to do when the money's all gone? Take it away, Hoss. What you going to do when the money's all gone?